Hello and welcome to the Investing on the Go podcast brought to you by Fund Calibre. I'm Ryan Lightfoot-Brown and we're joined today by Niall Gallagher, the Elite Rated Manager of the Gamsar Continental European Equity Fund. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. You started your career as an economist at the Bank of England. Does this experience influence your decision-making in any way? And as Governor Mark Carney is vacating his position in January, would you fancy the job? Yeah, uh, what a fancy job. I'll, I'll come back at that one. In terms of how it influences me, I think there are probably two things that are key. Um, the Bank of England, when I was there, and, and this is very much the case now as well, was a place that placed an enormous emphasis on rigorous uh, research and analysis. Uh, that was something that Mervyn King brought to the bank. He really uh, increased the analytical intensity of the bank when he became uh, chief economist. And that rigour and depth of research and the desire to really try and understand things, I think, was the key educational thing I took from the Bank of England. Uh, in terms of the macro, it is useful to a degree, but I've always found the best macro information you get is from talking to companies uh, rather than looking at national statistics. So it's really the investment rigour and, and analytical rigour that has helped me most from the, the Bank of England. As to whether I'd want Mark Carney's mm-hmm. job, uh, I don't think so. Uh, I think that will be quite a difficult job to do. And the job of the central bank governor is becoming increasingly politicised. And I think I'd rather stay out of politics, so, so no. Okay, and um, you previously said that Europe's one of the most hated markets in the world <laughs> at the moment. Uh, what's your outlook for it? Yeah, it's worth expanding on my comment about Europe being so hated because... It's something that comes out of a lot of the surveys, such as the Bank of America Merrill Lynch survey. It comes out of fund flows. It comes out of, I guess, what we get from talking to clients around the world. People have a very negative view on Europe. And I think, you know, the negative view comes from politics. It comes from things like Brexit or uh, concerns about populist governments in Italy. It comes from concerns about the stability of the Eurozone, the currency would break up. But I think there are a few things that are really quite important uh, to recognize. The first and the most important is that now over half of the revenues and the earnings come from outside of Europe. Uh, so actually, uh, for European equities, Europe is becoming increasingly less important. It's much more about the broader world that's important. And there are plenty of companies in our portfolio, in our fund, which drive a third or less of their profits from Europe, in some cases even less than that. And the really kind of key dynamic growing regions of the world, whether it's places like China or India, uh, Indonesia, Vietnam, uh, some of the countries in South America, they are more important in many cases. So the first point to make is that European equities actually aren't a great proxy for European economies anymore. Now that notwithstanding, the European economies actually are doing fine. So we look at places like Germany, which has been doing well for quite some time, uh, runs a budget surplus, has decent economic growth, very low unemployment. But then the more problem economies like Spain and Italy are now almost back to the lows of unemployment of 2008. Uh, the Spanish economy has been growing now for six, seven years. So I remember going to Spain a lot around 2011 and 12, and Portugal too. And they were quite depressed back then, but they've been growing now really since 2012 and 13. So we're pretty well into an economic recovery. Uh, the economies are, are booming, unemployment is low. And then as you go around the rest of Europe, uh, taken as a whole, the economies in Europe are doing okay. The Eurozone is probably growing at or slightly above trend. The survey data we see, which is often negative, I think is misleading. So I think broadly speaking, our outlook for the European economies uh, is reasonably sanguine. 
but more broadly, I make the point that the European economies are less important to European equities than they have been in the past. For the asset class as a whole, uh, we are quite positive. We're quite positive on the world in general. Uh, we think we are in a period of great dynamic change. Uh, there is some really interesting technological shifts happening. Uh, we are seeing the emergence of an enormous middle class in Asia. You know, bear in mind the population of Asia is a multiple of the population of Europe and the US combined. There are over 4 billion people in Asia. And the Asian middle class, which is emerging, is going to be absolutely enormous in terms of spending power. And some of our companies are very well exposed to that. Uh, the number of potential consumers for Louis Vuitton or for uh, uh, Nestle-type products or for uh, German cars in markets like China and then India, Indonesia, Vietnam, you know, off you go, add it up. It's enormous. So I think the, the period we're in is interesting. Our job is for managers to pick the right stocks. Uh, I think that's a much more interesting challenge. But the outlook, I think, is good. And a number of the companies in your fund are well-known names or have well-known products, like LVMH of Louis Vuitton, which we mentioned, and Moet Champagne, um, which people will love and know well. You've also got Ryanair, which people may not love as much, but uh, will still know the name. Uh, what do you like about these companies as investments? Yeah, well, let's take Ryanair first. Um, I've been investing in Ryanair for a long time. And I think fundamentally, the core competitive advantage of Ryanair is their ability to provide uh, basically seats or, or air tickets at a much lower price than anybody else. You know, if you add up, people do moan about the fact with Ryanair that you, you buy a ticket, then you have to buy space for your baggage. You may have to buy a priority uh, on board. You may have to have something else. But even adding all those things up, it is still by far the cheapest airline in Europe. And the potential for them to grow uh, right across the continent uh, through being able to provide cheaper airfares to people right across Europe is still very significant. They have about a 12 or 13% market share. We think over the next decade, decade and a half, they could probably increase that to 25%, perhaps further. And by being the lowest cost producer, as well having the lowest costs, uh, they are advantaged. So for Ryanair, it's really a growth story about taking market share, about growing markets, about bringing aviation to people who perhaps couldn't afford to fly before. And although uh, the airline industry is cyclical and we have the occasional bump, uh, the long-term story for Ryanair is, is very good. Um, obviously, I think we all know that traveling on Ryanair sometimes can be not the most enjoyable customer experience. Uh, they know that too. Uh, they are getting a bit better, but I think fundamentally, the customer will always travel with Ryanair if Ryanair is the best value. And I think that's really their key uh, customer proposition. LVMH is very different. I mean, LVMH is really about the huge growth, as I referred to a minute ago, in the emerging market middle-class consumer. Probably about a third, maybe more now, of LVMH's customers are from China. And the propensity of the Chinese to consume luxury is very high. Uh, the number of Chinese people who will enter middle-class status will probably expand by about three to 400 million people uh, over the next decade. And of those who will be in the upper affluent segment, which will be the ones that are most interesting to uh, LVMH, that could be up to 80 to 100 million people. That's an enormous number of consumers who have a propensity to buy high-end luxury brands, uh, consume high-end cognacs and champagnes. So for LVMH, what we love about it is they've got these brilliant brands which have been built up over uh, a couple hundred years in some cases, fantastic heritage, and they're unreplicable. So Hennessy Cognac has to come from Cognac, which is a region of France. 
uh, champagne comes from champagne. These are brands that you can't replicate. Uh, they can mess them up, but if they don't mess them up, they are brands with a fantastic moat around them. And the same is true of heritage, like uh, in Louis Vuitton or in some of their jewelry brands, Bulgari. Bulgari has a very good brand position as well. So the fact they have very good brands and then you have this enormous demand coming from Asia in particular over the next five to ten years, we think uh, means that they're very well positioned. So these are companies with really great growth prospects. And when you're researching companies for this fund, you often meet other firms in their supply chains. Can you explain this in a bit more detail, perhaps with an example? Yeah, it's actually uh, a much broader um, perspective than that. We, we, we refer to it as triangulation. So essentially, the way we think about investing in a company is to really understand the business. You should talk to their suppliers, their competitors, ideally former employees, uh, and also people who are potential distributors of the company's products. So we're trying to really form a 360-degree perspective uh, on the business. Uh, we use an expert network to do this. So we will contact or be given names or contacts of people through our network who are people who may be currently employed in competitors, people who may have worked for the business in the past, uh, people who were working for um, distributors. And we'll talk to them about the business, how it's positioned, the products, the capabilities, uh, the quality of the management, and that gives us a much fuller understanding of the businesses we invest in. So to give an example, uh, when we're looking at LVMH, we'll talk to people who are running luxury companies in China. So we'll talk to the CEOs of China businesses. We may speak to people involved in advertising and marketing who have touched the brand. We may talk to people who work in other luxury businesses who compete against LVMH. And we may also talk to people who are former employees. In some of our technology holdings, uh, we'll talk to, again, some of the competitors. So when we were invested in SAP, we'd speak to Oracle people. Uh, we would speak to the systems integrators, so the people like Capgemini and Accenture, who would be integrating uh, SAP. We'd talk to some former employers, uh, employees of, of SAP, people who worked for businesses they bought. And we would try and gain a really good perspective around what's going on. Um, it's something the very famous um, investor, Philip Fisher, who wrote a brilliant book, called Common Stocks and Common Profits, used to uh, talk about. He talked about it as being scuttlebutt, but basically what it really was about was just trying to deeply understand what a company does. It's probably the single um, most time-consuming part of our research process. So we spend more time uh, through our expert network, a company called ThirdBridge, uh, than any other research provider. And we think it gives us probably the best understanding of the companies that we have. And what concerns you more at the moment, Brexit or trade wars between China and the US and possibly between Europe and the US in the future? Uh, it's much more so the global trade wars. Uh, Brexit is something I think we're all a bit bored of. I think ultimately uh, it will have an impact in the short term, but I don't think in the long term it'll be huge. And for an investor in European companies that operate globally, actually it's really not that important at all. I think the China-US stuff is much more important, and I think it's much broader than a global trade war. I think what it comes down to more than anything else is the US waking up to the fact that two decades of technology transfer, which the Chinese often insist on as part of uh, dealing with US and European companies, is beginning to hand too much of an advantage to China. Uh, China has a much more uh, nationalistic, but also uh, a more authoritarian leader in Xi Jinping, than in previous leaders. There is much more of a China first policy. 
the China 2025 uh, policy as well of seeking technological leadership and new technologies, I think also has caused the US to wake up and ask the question, hang on a second, are we giving this technology to China? And why should we be doing that, given that the Chinese Communist Party is not democratic and doesn't necessarily always act in what we think is a fair way? So I think there is a much more profound reset going on between China and the US. Um, People may criticize Donald Trump, but I think on this area, his thinking is more coherent. And most importantly, behind Donald Trump, there is bipartisan support amongst the Democrats and the Republicans and also in the permanent bureaucracy in the U.S. So there is a very strong will to change the way that the U.S. engages with China and the way that China engages with the rest of the world. So I think this is something that's going to go on for quite some time. It may go on for many years. It may lead to some bumps. Hopefully we'll end up in a position where the two sides can work something out. But I think it's a more profound adjustment and it's more than just about trade. It's about how China settles into its position as potentially the largest economy in the world uh, in a manner that is fair, both in terms of how it acts, but also how it sees uh, the rules acting for it too. Because the Chinese perspective is they are operating a world system where they had very little uh, impact in its design. So they also want to make sure the world around them is fair for China too. So a lot of issues to think about. I think it's, it's important and I think it'll be bumpy, but I think that is the key issue geopolitically, not Brexit. But what about the prospects of those trade wars spilling over into the EU? Will the US go straight after Europe in, after once they've dealt with China? I worry about Europe far less because ultimately uh, Europe is not involved in forced technology transfer from America. There are no allegations that Europe is engaging in corporate espionage against the US. And ultimately uh, Europe is a, an ally of the US. I think there are criticisms that, that can be made of Germany in particular, uh, Germany is running a large budget surplus and a large current account surplus. So you could argue that Germany could be doing more to stimulate its own economy and not run such large surpluses. So I think that there possibly will be some stick waving at Europe by uh, President Trump. I don't think it'll be anything like as serious as what we've seen against China because the fundamental causes are quite different. So I don't really worry about a trade war between uh, Europe and the US. Uh, I think it's of a different order. Okay, well, Noel, that's been um, really, really interesting. Thank you very much for joining us. And thank you very much for listening. I've been Ryan Lightfoot-Brown. And if you'd like to listen to more of our Investing On The Go podcast, please subscribe to Fund Calibre. Please remember, we've been discussing individual stocks to bring investing to life for you. It is not a recommendation to buy or sell. The fund may or may not be holding these stocks at time of your listening.